uh, Trey's series on heaven. So um, I'm not going to say a lot. I just ask, uh, I'm going to have you all stand, if you would, with me. And uh, what we're going to do is recite the creed. I'm going to pray a bit, and then we'll just remain standing because the worship team's going to take over, and, uh, and we'll uh, worship this morning. So uh, if you would just all, uh, uh, yeah. We got the creed there, Glenn? There we go. If you just recite with me here. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into the dead. On the third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Heavenly Father, we just thank you that we can come together and we can recite this common prayer of faith, that we all uh, uh, hold these truths that you've made so evident in the Bible, that you are the creator of all things, that the Spirit holds us up and that Christ has redeemed us. Lord, we just thank you that we can see these things, we can recite these things without persecution. Father, we would pray that uh, you would open our hearts and our minds to the message Trey has given us, that he's going to give us today, Lord, and uh, just make make our worship and our song pleasing to you, Lord. In your name, amen. Amen. Church. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them at this time. And uh, turn with me to the book of Revelation. It's the last chapter in your Bible. Easy to find. So find your own Bible or a Bible in the pew back in front of you. And turn to the very last book in your Bible. It's called The Revelation. And uh, go ahead and flip to chapter 19 is where we're going to begin. And uh, we'll take a look at, uh, am I not on? Better? Better? Worse? Says I'm on. Looks like I'm plugged in. Check, check, check. One, two, three. <clears throat> Can everyone hear me okay? Good? Well enough? Okay. Sorry, Glenn. We're going to keep going. I've got a green light and I'm pushing on this. So, Okay. Uh, just wave at me if you can't hear me. Okay. You know, give me the thumbs up or something like that. But if I see you doing this, I'm not going to respond. Okay? So just thumbs up or good, but like this or this. I'm not going to respond to that, okay? So, Revelation chapter 19 is where we're going to be. Uh, As you're flipping there, I want to just draw your attention to um, the image that I introduced a couple weeks ago on the screen, and uh, it's a map. Uh, Hopefully Glenn can get there. I know he's checking on sound. Uh, But a couple weeks ago, I introduced an image of how our trip to heaven, or our final destination, is kind of like a trip that I took about a month ago from Lubbock to Champaign. Uh, And that is simply that I had two layovers. I had a layover in Dallas, and I had a layover in Chicago. uh, And then I ended up in my final destination, which was good old Champaign-Urbana. Now, the Bible describes our journey to our final destination in a very similar manner. Uh, You'll find out we begin here on Earth, right? That's where we're at now. And a couple weeks ago, we looked at where we go if we are Christians, if we have personally received Jesus, if we are born again. Uh, where we go one minute after we die. And I called it the intermediate heaven. And we took a a look in in detail about what that was like, what uh, characterized it, and what our experience there will look like. The second layover in our 
on our trip to our final destination, which the Bible describes as the new heaven and the new earth, is what theologians call the millennium. And we get that from Revelation chapter 19, where about six or seven times there's a reference to Christ coming back to the earth and reigning in a kingdom for 1,000 years, hence the name and the term millennium. So that's where we're going to be, and next week we'll talk about our final destination, the new heavens and the new earth. So we can move on from that. Let's pray. And as Glenn is getting things figured out back there, uh, let's jump into our sermon. So would you pray with me one more time? Father, we ask that you would be with us, in particular, as we think about things of eternity, as we think about things of where we will or can, depending upon what we do with your Son, spend all eternity. Father, these are weighty matters, and we thank you that your word has given us revelation about what happens after we die. And we thank you for this great theme that we've begun to explore and we'll continue to explore for the next uh, few minutes now, which is the coming of your kingdom, the return of your son, the resurrection of our bodies, and life in a millennial kingdom that will be spectacular. And so we eagerly await the return of your son, and we with hope turn towards what it will be like to be a subject in this kingdom under the ultimate king, Jesus Christ one day will return. And so help us, we pray, to learn, to grow, and to eagerly await being a part of that kingdom. We ask it in the name of Jesus and all of God's people said together. Amen. I want to uh, begin with another image. Uh, The radio host, Steve Brown, he has a Christian radio show, and he once told a story on his radio program about the ugliest car that he had ever seen. Uh, It looks maybe something like that. I don't think that's the particular one, but he describes it this way. He says it was it had a large gash on its side He says the door was held together with bailing wire Many places on the car were completely rusted out He says the muffler was loose and with every bump was hitting the street sending sparks flying in every direction He says it was hard to tell the original color of the car because the rest had eaten away so much of the original paint, and so much of the car had kind of been painted over with so many colors, it was hard to tell what its original color was. He says the most intriguing thing, however, about the car was its bumper sticker. And I don't know if you can read that bumper sticker there, but the most intriguing part about this car was its bumper sticker. And he said it read this way, this is not an abandoned This is not an abandoned car. Friends, we live in a world that is uh, fallen. We live in a world that's often ugly and at times can be even downright depressing. And we look at our own lives and the lives of those around us and what's happening in our world. And if we were honest, we might be tempted to wonder if God really cares about the world. If God really cares about what is happening in our world. But friends, the promise of the millennium, the promise of the millennial reign of Christ is God's bumper sticker. It's God's sign that reads, this is not an abandoned world. It's not an abandoned world. Jesus
is, first of all, we're going to take a look at uh, a phrase in the Millennial Kingdom. That is, what comes before the Millennial Kingdom? How will we get to this Millennial Kingdom? So we'll look at the phrase. Second of all, write down purpose. Because we're going to take a look at three brief purposes to the Millennial Kingdom. Why is it necessary that Christ come back and reign on the earth? And then thirdly, write down properties. Properties, because we're going to take a look at ten properties of what the kingdom of Christ will be like for those of us who have faith in Jesus and are born again. So, let's begin with our first P and take a look at a prelude or the prelude to the millennial kingdom. I hope that you're in Revelation chapter 19 because that's where we're going to get started. But what I'd like to do is uh, ask a couple questions and then hopefully allow uh, this prelude to the prelude to the millennium to, to maybe answer those questions. The first question is this, what are the events that will lead up to the millennial kingdom? So what will happen to bring about Christ's return to the earth and his thousand year reign? What, what will come before that. And then the second question is, how will we, those of us who are Christians, have faith in Christ, how do we get from, after we die, the intermediate heaven to this millennial kingdom? What's, what's the path? And so hopefully, we're going to answer those two questions. The clearest, the clearest reference to this thousand-year reign of Christ is found in Revelation chapter 20, verses 4, uh, verses four through 6. And we're going to get a little bit beforehand, starting in Revelation 19. I, I would like to put a chart up behind you, uh, behind me, that is. Uh, this chart I, hopefully will guide us. Don't be overwhelmed by the detail. What I want you to do is just kind of listen and follow along as I lay out about five steps, uh, five steps to prelude the millennium. First of all, what, what will be the, the next eschatological end times event? Well, according to how I understand the scripture, it will be what we call the rapture of the church. You may have heard of that before. It's from the Greek word that literally just means to be caught up with. If you're looking for scripture references, check out 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, Casey read it for us uh, earlier, and Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. Now, there are more passages, but these are the two main ones. So, the rapture of the church is the next main event in God's plan for the world. So what happens? What happens in the rapture? Well, simply a couple things will happen. First of all, Jesus will raise, he will resurrect the bodies of deceased Christians from time past, right? So those of us who have died, he will raise our bodies and he will reunite our soul, which was in heaven. Our soul was in intermediate heaven. There will be a reuniting of soul and resurrected body. And we will then go to be with Christ in heaven, in our resurrected bodies. Now, if we happen to be fortunate enough, and I, I believe it could happen anytime, if we happen to be fortunate enough to be alive at the time of the rapture, the Bible says that our bodies will be translated, that we will just be uh, changed into resurrected, glorified bodies, and we too, who happen to be alive during that moment, will also go to be with heaven, uh, in heaven with Jesus during the seven-year period called the tribulation. And that's the second major event. And so what kicks off this whole thing is the rapture. Secondly, you'll see on the chart, is a a time period of seven years called the tribulation. Uh, Some call it the great tribulation. If you're looking at scripture references, let me just direct you to a a couple. Daniel chapter 7, verse 27, 
is a very clear reference to this time period. And then if you're reading the book of Revelation, basically chapter 5 through chapter 18 describes this time period of the tribulation. So simply put, what is the tribulation? It is a seven-year period of at least three things. Number one, God's wrath upon unbelievers in the world. Number two, it's the time of Antichrist's rule. And we'll see him referenced here in a minute when we get into the text. And third, it's, it's a time of Israel's trouble. It's a time in which the nation of, of Israel will uh, undergo extreme persecution and will be purified eventually to place their faith in Jesus. So we have the rapture. We have the tribulation. And what happens next? Well, to end that time period of the tribulation, the Bible tells us in Revelation 19 and other places that what will end this time period will be the physical return of Christ to the earth. So if you have your Bibles open to Revelation 19, I'd like to start reading in verse 11. And we're going to read through the end of chapter 19 as we see a description of Christ's return to the earth. Let's start reading in verse 11. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Notice that, because that, I believe, church, is us. Let's continue. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords, verse 17. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, come, gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty, of horses and their riders, of all the flesh of all the people, free and slave, great and small. So there's a rebellion going on. There's a great battle to be waged. Verse 19, Then I saw the beast, that is the Antichrist, and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. So the war to end all wars, right? The Antichrist and all of his kingdoms and Jesus is coming back and all he's armed with is a sword that's coming out of his mouth. How do you think this is going to end? Then I saw the beast, uh, okay, verse 20. Then the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all of the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. So this is not much of a battle, right? Jesus returns and uh, he destroys the armies of the Antichrist and he throws the Antichrist, the false prophet, into hell. I want to show a brief clip. Uh, uh, about a week or two ago, Shelley and the kids were with 
uh, her sister. And so I had some downtime, which I don't normally do. And so I decided to watch some of my favorite movies. And uh, some of my favorite movies are The Lord of the Rings. And so I watched all three of them, not in a day, but pretty much in a matter of two days, I finished them all off and it was great. And I was reminded of this particular scene that so moves me because I believe it's at least a little bit of a picture of this painting of Jesus returning. The scene is basically this. All of the bad guys are storming the good guy's castle. Uh, Gandalf, who is a type of Christ at least, returns with an army and he's on a white horse and he is high above them on a hill and he storms down the mountain to save the day and wipes out all the bad guys. It's a beautiful picture of at least what this could be like. So let's just take a look to whet our appetites. Stand alone. Not alone. Go hit him! watch it, I get goosebumps. So, we have the rapture, the tribulation, Christ returns. Fourth, what's the next event? Let's continue reading in, in Revelation 20, because the next event is that Satan is bound. We, we sung of this, right, as we sang this song, when Satan is vanquished, right, and Jesus is king. I think a reference to the binding of Satan for this thousand years. Revelation uh, chapter 20, verses 1 through 3, and I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. At that time, he must be set free for a short time. So Satan is bound. Next, we get finally to the millennial kingdom. And what's described next in verses four through six is a resurrection, a, resurre a resurrection of tribulation saints and the thousand-year reign of Christ. Verses four through six. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their forehead or their hands. They came to life, a reference of resurrection, and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Parentheses, verse 5. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. In parentheses, this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share 
in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ. And notice, what will they do? And will what? Reign. And will reign with him for a thousand years. So, tribulation martyrs will be resurrected. I believe Old Testament believers at this point will be resurrected. And together, they with us, those who were raptured, had our resurrected bodies, and were brought back with Christ. Did you notice the reference? The reference in uh, Revelation verse 19 and verse 14. It says the armies of heaven were coming back with Christ. That is a reference to us. If you are a believer in Jesus, you will be a a participant or at least a a, a viewer of this great battle and return to Jesus. And we, along with these resurrected saints, will reign with Christ for a thousand years. There's more to come. Next week, we're going to continue on in Revelation chapter 20 and look at what happens after that. But hopefully, we've answered these two questions, right? First of all, what are the events leading up to the millennial kingdom? Well, hopefully we've seen that, right? And then how do we get from the intermediate state, where we go after we die, to the millennial kingdom? Well, Christ will, at the rapture, raise us, give us resurrected bodies. I believe we'll be in heaven during the seven-year tribulation, and we will return with Christ to rule and to reign with him. So that is the first P. That's our, our prelude to the, to the millennium. But now I want to turn to three purposes. What are the purposes of the millennium? In other words, why does it have, have to happen? Why does Christ have to rule on the earth in a real kingdom with real subjects, with a real throne, with real land? Why, why does this have to happen? Well, let me suggest to you at least three reasons. Three R's. So if you're jotting these things down, we're going for alliteration, right? Three R's. First of all, uh, the, pur- the first purpose is that it will to be to realize biblical covenants. That's your first R. To realize biblical covenants. So uh, I was listening to one of my friends I went to seminary with, and he was teaching on the millennium. And I think he had an insightful point. He said, you know, oftentimes when we think about things to come, we think, oh, we get it all from the book of Revelation. And we get a lot of it from the book of Revelation. But he had this insightful point. He said, a lot of what we know about what will come is from what has already been, what God has promised, in particular to the nation and the people of Israel, and then what has not happened. So he he simply said, "What what I simply do is I look at what God has said, what he has promised, to his nation, and, and then I look at what he's done. And if the things that he has promised have not completely fulfilled yet, well, then we know that those are yet future. They are yet to be. Those are the things that he will do. So we must begin as we talk about this millennial kingdom of Christ. I think the, the main purpose is that it helps God realize, that is, bring to pass, Biblical covenants. So there, there are four basic biblical covenants. We're going to go through this quickly. Four basic biblical covenants. Three of them are unilateral, which basically means God says, I'm going to do this for you, Israel, and you don't have to do anything. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to do it. It's a unilateral. One of them is bilateral, which means I'm going to do this if you will do that. Let's take a look at the first one. The first one is unilateral. It's called the Abrahamic Covenant. You'll see it on the screen. It extends starting with Abraham, and I believe it will extend even to the Millennial Kingdom. So simply, let's remember back Genesis 12 and 15 and 17. What did God promise to Abraham? Uh, Three things, simply. God promised Abraham, number one, a specific land. Geography, right? A specific land. Two, he promised him numerous descendants. Well, that happened because there are Jews all over the world. Number three, 
right? He promised them blessings, that he would bless Abraham and that he would then in turn bless the world through Abraham. And we know from Galatians chapter 3 that that is fulfilled in the person of Christ, that through Abraham, Jesus came and he blessed all the world. But has God fulfilled his promise to give them a specific land? I would suggest to you that no, that Israel has never fully possessed the promised land as portrayed in the Old Testament. So that, I believe, is yet to come. The second covenant is the Mosaic covenant. It's simply called the law, right? It's what God gave Israel. Here are the rules. You're going to enter into the promised land. Here's how you live life, right? It's the Mosaic covenant. I believe that that Mosaic covenant, because Israel's unfaithfulness was annulled at the cross. And so it didn't, it didn't, it didn't work. The people did not respond rightly to it. That is the only bilateral covenant. Moving on, we have the covenant called the Davidic covenant. What did God promise David? Anybody remember? What did God promise David? He promised David that his descendants, that is his family line, his family tree, would have the right to rule over Israel. And that one day, someone from his line would rule on a throne in Jerusalem in an eternal kingdom. So let me ask you that. Let me ask you this, church. Has that happened yet? And I would propose that no, that has not happened yet. And it will be in the millennial kingdom. The last covenant is what we call the new covenant. We see it in Jeremiah. We see it in Ezekiel. God essentially promised to the nation of Israel that they would be spiritually and physically restored. Uh, While part of the new covenant is inaugurated in the church, If you go back and read the New Covenant, you will quickly see that these things have not happened in full. And certainly they have not happened to the nation of Israel in full because most Jews reject who? Jesus, right? And so certainly these things have not come to be. So why Christ's kingdom? Well, God had promised several things and they have not come to be yet. I believe that they will come to be in the millennial kingdom. Second purpose reward. Write that down. Reward. I believe the second purpose of this reign of Christ is to reward the faithful. The millennium is a time that I believe God has set aside, at least in part, for rewarding his faithful throughout history by giving them shared authority, by allowing them authority to rule in a kingdom with Christ over all of the earth. Several passages. Let me just read a couple quickly. 2 Timothy 2.12 says, If we endure, we will also reign with him. Revelation 2.26, Jesus promises, To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. And there are numerous passages that talk about the saints reigning with Christ as a reward for our faithfulness. One pastor puts it this way. I like what he says. As he speaks about the relationship to our li- from our, our lives now to the millennial kingdom. He says, this is training time for reigning time. That's good, right? This is training time right now for reigning time in the future. Third, redeem. Your third R. It's to redeem cursed creation. What was God's goal? Remember, think back, Genesis 1 and 2. What was God's goal when he created the world? I would simply say it was to glorify himself by establishing his kingdom on earth through human flesh and bone representatives. Now, of course, that was stymied by the fall, our sin, and God's curses upon both us and the world. But I believe that that will be redeemed during this time period. 
the late Dr. Dwight Pentecost of Dallas Seminary said it this way. He said this, if there is no millennium, then God's purposes for the earth would be unrealized. And the problem generated by Satan's rebellion would never be resolved. Thus, the physical, literal reign of Christ on the earth is a theological and biblical necessity. Catch this last line. Unless Satan is victorious over God. And he is not, is he, church? He is not. So these are the three reasons, the three purposes for Christ coming. He will realize biblical covenants, promises made to Israel. He will reward the faithful, you and I, and he will redeem a cursed creation. In the few minutes that we have remaining, I want us to look at our third point, the properties of the millennial kingdom. This is what you've been waiting for. What is it going to be like, right? If you are going to be a part of that, if you're a Christian and you're born again and you go through all the stuff we talked about, rapture, tribulation, and you go down, right? Okay, finally, we're here. We've ridden on our horses as Christ rode, uh, you know, down into history on his white horse and we follow behind him and we reign with him. What's that going to be like? What's this thousand years going to be like? Well, I want to give you very quickly 10 properties. What is it going to be like? All of these come from Old Testament passages. All of them come from prophets that describe a time period that certainly has not come to be yet and a a time period that just doesn't seem to quite fit with Revelation 20 and 21 with the eternal state. And so we believe it will happen during the millennium. First of all, the millennium has a literal king and a literal kingdom. A literal king and a literal kingdom. Jeremiah describes a king from David's line who will rule over a politically and spiritually restored Israel in their promised land. It should be on the screen. Jeremiah 23, 5 says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a what? A king. A king, a literal king, who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the what? In the land, it's a king and a kingdom. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteous Savior. So then the days are coming, declares the Lord, when people will no longer say, as surely as the Lord lives who brought Israel up out of Egypt. No, this is what they will say. But they will say, as surely as the Lord lives who brought the descendants of Israel up out of the land of the north and out of all the countries where he banished them. Notice this last part. Then they will live in their own what? In their own land, right? So what is this kingdom? It is a literal king with a literal kingdom. Second of all, it's a kingdom of peace. What do we call Jesus? It's, it's a text that we oftentimes think about in, at Christmas time. But we call him the prince of what? Peace. We call him the prince of peace. And when we look at that prophecy, what we find out is that it's not just an inner, I feel good, ooey gooey kind of a peace, although certainly it's that. It is his kingdom on the earth will be characterized, first of all, by peace among the nations. Listen, for the first time, I think, in all of human history, there will be no wars anywhere. Just think that. Think about that. No wars anywhere. Micah 4, 3, speaking of Christ. He will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. 
they will notice. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. This will be a spectacular millennium of unprecedented peace. So if we want to put that in common language, we'll take tanks and bombs and guns, and I don't know what we'll do with them, but we won't use them to kill each other. They will be used for peaceful things. Amazing. Number three, glory. The radiant and visible glory of God will be fully manifest and seen in all the world. Isaiah chapter 40, 3 through 5. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. Why? Why will this geographical shifts happen? Verse 5, And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. That will be a spectacular day when we see with our eyes the glory of God. Number four, it will be characterized by holiness. This excites me like none other. Righteousness will be the norm in Christ's kingdom. Not evil, not wickedness. Imagine turning on the nightly news, and I don't know if there will be nightly news in the millennial kingdom, but imagine turning on your tube and story after story after story will be things of righteousness, will be things of people helping one another, will be things of how we honor and glorify one another. And you won't hear a bad news story. There will be no murders, no rapes. This will be a holy kingdom. Isaiah 35 eight describes it this way. And a highway will be there, and it will be called the way of holiness. And it will be for those who walk in that way. That is the way of holiness. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will will not go on it. The kingdom is described as a highway. And as we go on this highway into the kingdom, there will not be wicked people walking in this way. It will be a way of holiness. Righteousness will reign. Number five, it will be a kingdom of justice. It will be a kingdom of justice. Jesus will deal with any sin or evil, outward rebellion. There will be unbelievers, we know, in the millennial kingdom. How they get there, Ask me afterwards. I don't know. But there will be unbelievers. We know that because at the end, there will be a satanic-led rebellion of unbelievers who rebel against Christ. During his reign, Christ will administer perfect justice, thus restraining sin. Imagine a legal system that always gets it right. Remember, just imagine a legal system where not only is the verdict always correct, but punishment, justice happens immediately because Christ is judge and jury and he knows all and he is all powerful. Notice this, Isaiah 11, three through five. 
speaking of Christ, he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor on the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his, li- with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. So it will be a kingdom of justice. Number six, it will be a kingdom where knowledge of God will be sought after. There will be a hunger to know God and to know about God. And nations, peoples from all over the world will travel to Jerusalem to learn about God from God himself. Micah 4.2 says this, Many nations will come and say, Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, a reference to Jerusalem, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So imagine, imagine, imagine a nation, a kingdom, a time where people actually want to know God and they're so hungry to know about him and to know him that they will travel many miles just to hear from his lips. Number seven, health. This kingdom of Christ will be characterized by health. In the millennium, we will see Jesus' own version of universal health care. That's what politicians want to bring to people, right? We, we all want people to be healthy, and that's a good thing. We want people to be healthy. Well, apparently in Christ's kingdom, he will have his own universal health care, and it will come from him. There will be an absence of sickness or deformity, as the king will heal all diseases and deformities from his people. Read these, these two verses with me. Isaiah thirty three twenty four. No one living in Zion, the capital of this great worldwide kingdom, no one living in Zion will say, I am ill. Just let that sink in. And the sins of those who dwell there will be forgiven. Twenty nine eighteen. In that day, the deaf will hear the words of the scroll, and out of gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. This will be an amazing time. Number eight, prolonged life. If you think these are good, catch this one. Prolonged life, Isaiah 65, 20 and 22. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child. Did you catch that? You're a hundred, you're young, right? The one who fails, okay, verse, uh, the one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. You don't live to a hundred, you're accursed. No longer will they build houses and others live in them or plant and others eat. For as the days, okay, notice this, for as the days of a tree so will be the days of my people. My chosen, my chosen ones who, my chosen ones will live long, long enjoy the work of their hands. So, you have any trees in your backyard, front yard, right? How long have they been there, you think? 100 years, 200 years? I don't know. I bet they live a long time. What this text is saying is that human lifespans will be like the lifespans of a tree in that day. Prolonged life. Number nine, prosperity. At least in part and in certain regions, the curse on the productivity of the earth will be lifted. Notice what Amos 9 says. 
The days are coming, declares the Lord. Okay, farmers, you're going to like this, right? The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills, and I will bring my people Israel back from exile. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. So, so what does he say here, right? Farmers, imagine not being able to plant in April because the harvest from last October is still being harvested. That is productivity. I don't know what you're putting on your plants, but it's not that good, okay? It's not this good. Prosperity. And number 10, universal worship. Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 9 through 10. It pictures Gentile nations, that is everyone who's not a Jew, calling upon God, coming shoulder to shoulder to Jerusalem to worship and to bring offerings. It says this, Then I will purify the lips of the peoples, that is Gentiles, all of us who are non-Jews. I will purify the lips of the people that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, my scattered people will bring me offerings. If you want to follow up on this to next week, this week, go to Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48 and read what you see there. It's an amazing account that describes the worship during this millennial kingdom that will be centered in a rebuilt temple in the city of an enlarged Jerusalem, including priests and rituals and sacrifices that will serve not as a, to, for, for sin to be forgiven, that happens in Christ alone. It will serve as a memorial, much like the Lord's Supper, to Jesus' one and only sacrifice for sin. And so I hope these 10 properties, I hope they just whet, whet your appetite. I hope they bring you hope and joy. And I hope that they encourage you to know that God has not, he's not given up on this world. He will fulfill his promises. There's a story that I came across of uh, the great composer whose last name is uh, Bach, Johann Bach, I believe. And the story goes that uh, oftentimes he had a penchant, well, for uh, just sleeping in, okay? So he would sleep in. Hey, great composers do it. We should do it too every now and then, right? So he slept in consistently. And the story is told of, of how his children loved to wake him up. What they would do, uh, they had a unique, unique way of doing this. They would go over to his piano and, and begin to play one of his compositions. And they would play his composition. And when they would get to the very last note, do you know what they would do? They would stop. They would get to the last note and they would leave it unresolved. Without fail, as the story goes, this would wake their father who would arise from his sleep, go to the piano, and play the last note, play the final chord. He couldn't stand to leave it hanging there, incomplete, unfinished. Church, similarly, we are waiting for the last note on the final page of God's song of victory. And he will not leave his grand masterpiece without striking the final note. The final note is the kingdom of Christ. Let's pray. Father, these are great and glorious truths and our hearts who belong to Christ, who know that we will one day be a part of that kingdom. We can't wait for him to come back and we can't wait for him to rule on this earth. We can't wait 
for this kind of government. And while democracy is good and well, we need a theocracy. We need you. We need your son to come back to this earth to distribute justice, to fulfill promises that you have made, to reward those of us who are faithful, to redeem the curse, how glorious and great it will be. Father, if there's a young man or a young woman, a child, a boy or a girl, an elderly person, and they're here, and they don't know that they will be a part of that kingdom. They don't know that they will be a part of it because they don't know if they truly know the king. May they now bow the knee at King Jesus. May they confess that they are sinners unworthy of heaven and of his rule, that they have broken the laws of God and that even their very nature is corrupted and they need to be saved. They need to be saved from the penalty of their sin. They need to be changed from the power of sin that lives within them. They need to live in this kind of a kingdom where the king rules. May they trust in Christ. May they trust in what he did dying on the cross for them and rising to prove that his sacrifice was acceptable. May they bow the knee to Christ, accept the free gift of salvation, eternal life, renewed relationship with God, forgiveness of sins, and so much more, and know that they can become a citizen of the great king who is coming again. We ask it in Jesus' name. And all of God's people together said, amen. Church, next week, new heavens, new earth. It gets even better. See you then.